enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. I'm so excited for today's show with Lauren Antonucci. Lauren is a registered dietitian who put out a wonderful book about uh, Masters Runner's Nutrition. And I was so excited to dive into this. This is a very specific topic. And I love these, you know, when, when people come up with products or services or talking points that are super niche. I love that because you can really just dive into it and really enjoy exactly what they're talking about, which is always a fun thing to do. So let's get into it with Lauren Antonucci. Hello, Lauren, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to chat with you. You recently put out a book focusing on master's nutrition for runners, which I'm really excited to talk to you about uh, as a master's runner myself. See, I'm you know, this obviously this is more of a selfish thing than anything else. I can talk to someone who is an expert in a field that I struggle in. So if anyone else is going to get something from that, that is really just an added bonus to my own personal benefit. So I am really excited to have you on today. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. And I can't imagine you're the only runner that wants to hear about nutrition. So uh, I'm sure everyone will have fun. That's true, right? Nutrition in running shoes pertains to us all. We all we all have we all have certain um, you know information gaps or things that we just like to hear about. That's for sure. I guess first things first, because this is this book focuses on masters runners. Um, I'm going to take something from early on in the book um, that I have a question about. I guess the first question is, how dare you? Um, because masters runner starts at thirty five. How dare you? I thought I had just entered this group. I've been here the whole time. So I didn't make this stuff up. Um, So I'm not the first to coin the term and I didn't pick the age. I mean, actually, when I started researching it because I was asked to do this book uh, and I said, master's athletes, hold on, let me look up who's a master's athlete at which age and swimmers are master's athlete at different ages from golfers, but somewhere around 35 for most people is the cap. And yes, I've been in that group for a while as well. So, you know, we should just enjoy it. Is there a science behind the line of demarcation there? That's a good question. I think, you know, in swimmers, it's it's pretty much younger. Um, a couple of the athletes in my book, one was an Olympic swimmer. She's like, at 18, we're masters. It's it's over. Um, for, for all for all due respect, I'd say the same about my athletic career as well. So I'll just throw that out there. You know, my, my PR in the 1500 was freshman year in high school. So I suppose we can draw that line in the sand wherever we want, right? Um, but I'm sure we've excelled at other distances since. There you go. There you go. All right. So what led you to you were asked to do this book? What was kind of the and I love these sort of process questions. You know, every Friday we put out an episode, you know, running between the lines where I talked to a writer, put out a piece. We don't go through the piece step by step. It's more of like, hey, what brought you to the point of writing this article or or essay or what have you? And I'll have to do a little bit of that with you. Uh, you said that you were asked to do this book. So what is that process like? Not only in terms of main, you know, kind of building up the knowledge base that would put you in the running to do that, but just being asked to take on such a huge project. Well, first of all, thanks, Matt, for bringing me back to that moment because I remember it very clearly. It was an exciting day. I got a call from this woman who became my editor just saying she'd done some research and they want someone to write a book on master's athletes nutrition. And she found me, I guess I had written for lots of publications over the years and I'd worked with the New York city marathon and written for triathlete magazine for a few years. So somehow she found me, she asked me to write a book. And I said, well, 
I don't know how to write a book. You know, I've written plenty of articles and I talk to people all day, but a long book, that's for writers. You know, I'm a, I'm a science nutritionist person. And she said, well, we walk you through the process. And I was like, well, okay, what's the content? So the conversation proceeded, you know, that I was supposed to create the content. And of course, I guess I'm an expert in the field. I'm supposed to know what goes in the book. But still, I was at a loss for how do you write an outline for a book? Um, but the long and the short of it is she convinced me on that day, and she was 100% honest and true, that she was going to support me and make sure that uh, this book came to fruition and that it was done in a manageable way. So we set the timeline together. It's like, how long do you think it's going to take? I have no idea. You know, it's like saying, how long do you think the marathon's going to take? And you've never run a mile before. I have no idea, right? Or maybe you've only run a mile before. Um, but I was really excited is what I know after that conversation with her. I said, well, I have three young kids. I'm running a business. I don't have time, but I'm really excited. And I've learned over the years that we can carve out time and we can get rid of other things in our lives that we didn't need to do. For me, it might be vacuuming. You know, I did probably a lot less vacuuming that year. The kids helped out. And I said, yes. Um, and from then, you know, it was writing a, a an outline of the chapters and what I wanted to go into it. And I will say the further and further along I got, the easier that process became because all of the things that should be in a book like this just kind of came flooding out as, oh, this would go next. And of course, we need to talk about this. Well, I can I can see how that would be exciting, right? You get that you have approached. It's kind of like this career validation, like, hey, they chose me. This is wonderful. Um, when you're thinking about what what goes into this book, how much do you separate between, okay, here's what master's runners need to know. And then also here is what is unique for master's runners and why, like, how do you, and maybe there's even other things. Maybe there's other buckets as well. Those were the first two that kind of came to my mind. Um, yeah. In terms of like parsing out, all right, what needs to be in here, what doesn't and how much goes or is from each. Right. That's a great question, Matt. And that's a question I was asking myself within the next 24 to 48 hours too. How much research is there in each specific topic of nutrition under the heading of master's athletes? Um, and I will tell you, there's a lot more than you might think and also less than we would like. Um, so, I mean, I felt like there's no assumption that should be made that any particular athlete at any particular age should already have some sort of breadth or depth of nutrition knowledge, especially when it pertains to running. And even if they've heard it before, you know, maybe fueling for a long run or the importance of recovery nutrition probably bears repeating with hopefully a different slant. And maybe I peppered in all these stories of these elite athletes, and hopefully that'll bring home some real life stories. So I really felt it was important to go through every step of the way, what is important for athletes. And when there was really specific information that pertained to master's athletes, it was in there. And if there was an area where it wasn't so clear that there was a difference from age 20 to 40 to 80, um, then it was business as usual. Sports nutrition still is there. Right. And I think about, you know, the kind of like the, the things that people always say to avoid when it comes to conversation or was like, okay, you should really avoid politics and you should really avoid religion, right? If you're in a situation where you don't really know the people around you, you're trying to have an enjoyable time. I feel like you can add a third thing to that. And that is what people should be eating. Cause I feel like, that can be a wasteland of um, not, either not enjoyable conversation or wild guesses and conspiracy theories. Any conspiracy theories is a little too heavy handed, but you know what I mean? There, there can be a lot there. There can be a lot of misinformation and there can be a lot of people who are very, very confident 
in opinions that are not grounded in much. So where do you go as someone who works in this industry who's now trying to provide some sort of knowledge base to her readers, um, knowing that people are going to come into this topic generally with some very strongly held beliefs that um, aren't going to be tied, again, to a whole lot of either research or uh, personal anecdotes? So first of all, that's hysterical. And no one's ever said that to me before, but I definitely have that experience. And I'm sure most people have. Uh, And I work with a wide range of people. I work with tons of athletes of all ages and abilities from new to the weekend warriors to elite and Olympians. And then I work with all kinds of other people who don't have the desire to run a marathon or do an adventure race or any of that. And, you know, they're coming in for their diabetes and their hypertension. And so you open that up and yes, the, the world is your oyster in terms of how many crazy nutrition notions. I mean, I think that's more of a danger of me walking around in my normal life um, saying something and somebody jumping on it that maybe doesn't or does know me in, in a different way. I'm, in a, I'm at my kid's martial arts studio and I start giving out cookies. Someone's going to say something. Why are you giving your kids cookie? Aren't you a dietitian? And no judgment. That's fine. I don't take it that way. I'm like, well, you know, I follow a pretty inclusive and well-rounded. I'm like, I might go into that whole thing depending, you know, our kids can still have cookies. I can have a cookie. You can have a cookie. Or I might just smile and laugh and, and end it there. Um, but in terms of the book, I mean, it was a lot easier than in normal life, I would say, because I led by the science and the science is the science. And so if the science is there and it's really consistent and we have tons of peer reviewed studies over 50 years, we're pretty confident. If we didn't, I looked and I, I really kept an open mind. I mean, I had some strong opinions myself going in that carbs are important and that's still the case and that wasn't disproven. But I looked as much as I could into other research to say, well, okay, I've been a sports dietitian for 20 years. I'm a fan of carbs. I know the importance, but could there be anything I'm missing that needs to be included here? Um, And there weren't really any surprises, and I did go through some of it. Of course, I could have kept going on fad sports nutrition things for another 75 pages, but the book had to end. Right. No, absolutely. I I can believe it. And within the uh, research on food, I I think... To tell you, I'm going to reverse course here real quick. Mid-question. Um, yeah, I think with food, it's hard because everyone eats. So everyone has an opinion on it, right? It's just like my wife's a teacher. Everyone's gone to school. So everyone has an opinion on education. Like I was in school. Like I might not be a teacher, but I have opinions. Like I know what's, I kind of know what's going on. Uh, so it's like one of those things where people have done it. It's not like, hey, I've never been sailing, but I'm going to tell you how to sail. Like you don't hear that very often, you know what I mean? But it's just it's just one of those common life uh, things. So it's easy to to form some opinions, even if it's they're kind of coming out of nowhere uh, or just coming from Doctor Google. It's kind of understandable how people can get there, right? And I mean, I think a lot of that just comes from people's preconceived notions that because we all eat and we have every day of our lives since we were born in some form, and there's a lot of kind of baggage that goes along with that. Well, since I've been eating my whole life, I should probably already know the answer to every question. Therefore, I shouldn't need to ask them. So if I am, that might confuse me kind of thing, right? So when someone is confused by what they should eat or the misinformation out there, instead of saying what I prefer people to say is, of course, I'm confused. There's a ton of misinformation out of there. It's really easy to see this on the internet. And that person spoke about this at practice and this well-meaning doctor and that coach and when we combine them all, it's a muddy water of confusion. Instead of that, people come in like, I should already know this, so I'm just going to plot ahead with what I know or think. 
Right. Confusion can be hard because it's it's gets to the point where you can just be like, okay, I don't know what the answer is. I get conflicting information. The easiest thing now is just for me to do whatever I want and then basically justify it with whatever head which whatever headlines I want to use. Right. So it's like like I just I just intuitive eat I just intuitively ate nachos and queso for lunch. Well, I was intuitive eating, so that's fine. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, it's I'm okay fine with as long as you're happy and reaching your goals and feeling good about it, right? So if someone is eating well some said, yes. crazy breakfast before their run, and I don't even want to name a food instance in here, but something that everyone on their team thinks is totally ludicrous, but it works for them, do they need to change it? No, they don't really need to change it. Now, if they start realizing, oh, I'm running longer, and so therefore this breakfast no longer works, or my stomach's hurting, or I'm my mood is not great or I'm getting injured. Once you have a reason, then then people start exploring it. And then I would say, okay, then it's a good idea to figure out the information. And that's what I'm here for, right? It's a confusing world of nutrition. I am very happy and capable to weed through it all and then help give you, all right, Matt, you just told me all this about you. Here are two or three things I think will help. What do you think about these? Or does this sound like it would work for you? And then it's, one-on-one, it's a conversation and we can make a lot of headway. In a book, I had to try to reach as many of those things as possible, and then you will pull from it what you think applies to you. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I heard other podcasters who were really into performance and athletics, people like Rich Roll and Tim Ferriss, who used it all the time. And I thought, hey, man, if they're going to use it, then I should too. And I'm so glad that I did. So what's in this stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, all to help you start your day the right way. The special blend of ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your recovery. Literally all the things. I mean, there's too many things for me to list. I actually have to like take a pause during the sentence. Uh, but it's it's legit, and I'm so glad that I use it. I use it basically because I know that getting my vitamins and minerals from from foods is probably the best way to do it. But I usually just don't have the kind of diet and make the kind of food choices that's going to put myself in the optimum position. And that's why I take Athletic Greens to make sure that I have everything I need because I know I'm probably not getting it from foods because I just don't quite have the, the discipline or the food choices that I need. And Athletic Greens is there to help me out. And I'm so glad that they are. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. Hey, everybody, do you want to save money on your grocery bill? Well, every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. Try America's Best Value Meal Kit for planning dinners today. I love every plate for a couple of different reasons. First of all, I just love having things in my kitchen, especially in my refrigerator, that isn't the same old thing that I do every single week. Also, getting things that aren't too adventurous that my kids are definitely going to eat. Obviously, you're never going to beat that a thousand with that. But with every plate, my kids have really enjoyed it. And I like the food as well. And it's just not the same stuff every single week, which can get tiring. 
So you can choose between 17 recipes that change each week, swap proteins and sides for things that you like, so you can switch up your dinner routine however you want. And that's the key thing. It's however you want. There's so many options, and it's all great stuff, which is also huge. For me, the difference between this and some of the other uh, services in this genre are, first of all, the price. It's absolutely fantastic. We'll get to it in a second. The kinds of meals that are provided, that they're really good, but not too adventurous, have also been a huge thing for me. And now I've been using these more often now that groceries have kind of gone up and the price for every plate has pretty much stayed the same. So try every plate today. It's $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179. That stands for $1.79 per meal. So get started with every plate, like I said, for $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179 today. That's up to $104 value. Right. So you have clients that you work with. So what are some things, some kind of elementary level or introductory, some elementary, some introductory level questions that you would ask somebody early on, say that first conversation where you're getting to know them, what they've done before, what their current habits are, all of that stuff that, that kind of informs the foundation of your opinions or not opinions, but your advice to them uh, later on as you go. Oh, this is good. I'm going to have all my future interns listen to this so they know what to do. It's perfect. I mean, I really want to get to know the person. I joke that in the first hour or an hour and a half that I meet someone, we get to know each other really well. Now, I may not know their favorite color. I may or may not know their pet's name, but I really get to know a lot. I want to know why you came in, what your goals are, what you've been doing, what you think about nutrition, uh, if there are any medical history, medications, supplements, allergies, all those kinds of things. Uh, in terms of goals, you know, are there time goals? Are there performance goals? Does somebody have a body composition goal? Do they also need to lower their cholesterol? We're master's athletes. So this is, you know, age 35 and beyond. I'm raising my hand nice and high. That's that's like my primary thing right now. I hear you. Yeah. So once you get to that, then you can say, I'll, I'll kind of feed off of your joke before of the intuitive eating, which by the way, is a very complicated and misunderstood concept that we can go into or not. But um it's not just about eating junk food all day. I know, and I was I was parrying I was, I was parrying it on purpose. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I know it. I know it is valid for a lot of people, uh, but I always joke that like for me, intuitive eating is basically giving someone with procrastination issues like a loose deadline. Right, and you know, I mean, now we're getting a little off for a second, but I think it's important. You know, I think intuitive eating is an amazing tool and concept. But it doesn't work 100% for everyone all the time, and that's also okay. So I have some clients who have been following a plan and not listening to their hunger for so many years that if you just jump into intuitive eating randomly because you read a, an article, that's not the right entry point, right? So, um, And a lot of times we may require a lot of support. It's like saying, you're going to a foreign country. I'm not telling you where you're going. Pack a suitcase. How are you going to do that? But if I give you some information, it'll be this climate. It'll be this temperature. You're going for this many days. Now you can start to pack your suitcase. Am I going to be running? You know, so the same thing with the food. I have to give people more tools than just that. Give some foundational stuff. What are your protein needs? Or when do we need to eat certain foods? Because you've told me that every time you come back from your run, you don't eat intuitively you weren't hungry, but then later you're starving and cranky. Well, now we have to back it up and say, we have to be strategic due to how you feel later. So it is complicated. Um, and I might've gone on a, a side note, but 
No, I love it. This is this is why we call it the Rambling Runner Podcast, and I set you up. It's I, I was per, I was purposefully just throwing that out there, almost to kind of see uh, as like little bait, like all right, you know. But um, it's it's funny because I have so many issues. People who listen to this show have heard me recount many of them over and over again. Um, when people are thinking about masters athletes, okay, I know a lot of times some of my preconceived notions are a part of it's just from my own reality as being a master's athlete, but I think I probably would have come to the same conclusion six years ago before I entered master's land as an athlete um, is people thinking about, okay, um, metabolism slowing down, right? Probably not being able to eat what they could have gotten away with early on in their life. Um, I'm not saying that would have led to like the best performance earlier on in their life. Maybe they could have gone away with it. Um, things along those lines. Are there other things that, maybe masters athletes need to be more aware of than maybe athletes who are a decade or so younger. Um, not again, not saying that they're not important for those athletes, but maybe it's more important for a master's athletes to be aware of. hundred percent. So the two that come to mind are going to be, and one is really controversial. So we can see how much controversy we, we strike up. We'll go with the less controversial one. The easier one definitive is we need more protein than we did when we were younger um, we're not going to be able to absorb and assimilate every single gram of protein the way we used to. So our total protein needs go up. Now our protein needs are higher as athletes anyway, right? So I suppose if someone were only running one mile three times a week and they were just starting out or just coming back from something, their protein needs haven't increased very much. But as soon as we start getting into higher mileage and we're finding this more fun and we're running longer or harder or speed work, we're going to need more protein. So our needs are probably about twice as high as the average non-active individual of our age. Yeah, that 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 is that. I mean, it's not news to me because I have your book, but that would be news to me pre me looking at your book. Yeah, for sure. I think it's one of the things that surprised most people, and I mean, it honestly surprised me as I was researching it as well. And that wow, it really, really makes a big difference. And I mean, I have some athletes, there are a couple of uh, amazing gentlemen in the book that are in the 80 plus um, world category, because they are still competing on the, at least the national stage. Um, and we were looking at their protein intake after we had our conversation when I interviewed them for the same thing. It's like across the board age, you know, 35, 40 to 80, I think athletes do often struggle getting in enough protein. Um, and that makes a big difference. So really getting in enough protein immediately after the workout. And that protein need goes from maybe about 15 or 20 grams, which is what you'll read in a lot of the articles you read out in the world, or maybe people will hear on other podcasts. Um, and that goes up from our 10 teens, 20s, 30s to 30 to 40 grams as we get older. So it's a pretty big difference. Not always easy to take in right after a run, especially as, I mean, I'm, I'm here in New York, it's going to start getting pretty hot pretty soon. And we're going to come back and just be so hot that you're not really hungry. So really realizing how important it is to get in that protein and then to get in protein four times a day, uh, because a lot of athletes will say, well, I get protein for dinner and that's probably fine because I'm a runner and I need carbs. Well, that's true. Uh, but maybe protein once a day is enough. So really in terms of maintaining our lean body mass, which is then tied to metabolic rate or how many calories we burn, um, really important to keep eating enough protein and that that goes up through the years. So that's the first one. 
And, not, and nobody can really argue with that. That science is pretty clear and it makes sense. Second one, there'll, there'll be some arguing from the people who have already been in an eating pattern that they are finding enjoyable or works for them. But master's athletes really should not be doing fasted workouts. And the research is pretty clear on that too. If you want to perform well and you want to recover well, we really need to eat before we go. Now, I have a lot of athletes that have written to me especially since the book comes out, has come out either friends or randomly on Instagram or wherever, like, wow, I'm really trying to eat before this workout. And so that makes me happy to see that they're doing that. Not because I told them to, but because it's really going to benefit them in terms of longevity in sports. So again, going back to maintaining intensity, maintaining the ability to perform at a decent level, whatever that is for you over the duration of your workout, and then being able to spare glycogen and be able to recover better. So we have higher protein turnover. So we have um, more muscle protein synthesis after workouts, which again, all goes back to maintaining or building lean body mass, metabolic rate, power, speed as we age. So that's a really important one too. All right, let's dive into that second one first. Um, I don't find it that controversial, but I would say um, I guess part of me must also define terms. So when you say it's important not to have a fasted workout, does that mean any kind of run or are you talking about like a quality session, like a speed work session or a longer run or, or, you know, something like that? Good question. Absolutely. Without a doubt, long runs, which I think most runners know whether or not you make it happen all the time or not. Everyone knows I probably should be eating before I do my long run where we get into some gray area is we runners are really good at justifying, well, this run's not really that long, right? Oh, it's only however many miles less than my longest run of my life. Especially if someone's run a marathon, it's pretty easy. Well, I ran 20 miles once. And so 10 probably isn't that long, but it is. Um, So knowing that our brain doesn't decide how long the body thinks a run is. um, So for long runs, for anything with intensity, for strength training sessions, for tempo work, for sure. But then really, as we get older, I mean, I won't, I will do whatever it takes to eat something before I go out. I don't ask myself whether I'm hungry. I don't ask myself what time it is. I don't ask if I want it. I have three choices and I pick one unless I have a relaxing, you know, Saturday morning before a long run at a lovely time that's later in the day. But it, it really is that important to get in that habit. So starting with the long runs and the intense stuff, and then over time, really seeing if and how that benefits someone, and then really trying to fuel before all of them. All right. So let's talk about our early morning runners, because a lot of people who listen to this um, are out, out of college. So either they have jobs and or they have families and it can be, you know, they, they're doing all they can to fit their run in. Oftentimes that means they're going in the morning, which means they're going through this scheduling situation where they're, okay, I need to be, they basically figure out what time do I need to be not running anymore and fun- and functioning as an adult in my house, right? So say it's like at 6.30 a.m., I need to be with my kids or doing something, right? I have to be done. Mm-hmm. So then they start working back. Okay, so... I'm running for an hour. Okay. So that takes me to five 30. Okay. Well I need to wake up in the morning and I need to go to the bathroom. I need to maybe have some coffee or I need to like loosen up. I can't just walk out the door. Hey, that takes me to 5am. Um, what are we talking about in terms of say an easy run on a weekday where someone has these other const- people have these other constraints. Talk to me about fueling in that, in that uh, context. So Matt, I am totally with you. I mean, I run my own business. I see clients right now. I'm doing most of it remotely because of the pandemic. As a lot of us, I have three kids, they're 15, 13, and 10 right now. So we've been 
raising them and at different stages for 15 years. Uh, I'm totally with you. That has morphed tremendously for me and it will for other people. So when I was a grad school at Berkeley and I could get up and run and all I had to do was I stretched for maybe 30 seconds. That was a mistake. I should have been stretching longer, but you know, I left myself time to run, shower, stretch for 30 seconds and leave. Now, of course, with kids and other things or commutes, you need more time in the morning. I think the biggest misconceptions about the fueling are that it takes too long or that it's going to be difficult to digest. And again, as a runner, I mean, I look at everything like a challenge. The hill's really tall. Great. I'm going to run up it. Um, You tell me you can't fuel. Great. Let's find a way. So I don't think it has to be hard. And I think most people can make it happen. So if someone said they're getting up and they have half an hour, you gave me a lot of leeway, Matt. So you gave me 30 minutes to wake up, drink your coffee. Now we have no excuse. You can eat, let's start with half a banana or two graham crackers. You can do something, right? And then we can work off of that. Maybe we do some egg whites and a banana. Maybe we put some peanut butter on the graham crackers. Maybe there's toast. Um, Some people really do wake up and they're out the door five minutes later with maybe no coffee, no stretching, nothing. That's a little trickier. And then we would probably be more inclined to say, okay, the easy runs, if you're feeling okay and recovering and meeting your needs throughout the day, let's just get you out the door. But on those intense days, maybe we start taking in a few graham crackers with some water before. And then I would say our second remedy or approach to that would be, we're just going to start fueling during sessions sooner. So if they can't eat before, maybe we're only doing an hour run only in air quotes here, um, if you can't hear it in my voice, right? Which is still a substantial run, but people will just say only, and maybe they don't think they need to fuel. And maybe there's some intensity. So they're going to do some fart lick or some speed play and they can't eat before, then I would really work on, okay, what can we carry with you? You know, can you bring a little sports drink bottle? Can you take some glucose tablets? Can you eat a couple of gummy bears, raisins, like just something so we can play. I mean, I feel like we have a lot of strategies that uh, we, we really want people fueled because it reduces rates of recovery. It makes our runs feel better. I mean, think about it, Matt, what my husband kind of, I guess, jokes all the time. He's like, we can't ask you, meaning me, we can't ask you what the weather is or what's going on in the world. All we need to know is how your run went. And that'll tell how the rest of the day is going. Like if I had a good run, it can be pouring down rain and I'll say, it's a beautiful day. And my husband's like, it's pouring outside. I was like, oh yeah, I guess I just had a good run. So I will do anything to make those runs fun and enjoyable because they are such an important part of my day. So I hope to impart that on others that it doesn't take a lot of time. You can digest it and it's totally worth it because your runs will be more fun. And hopefully it gets us that back end of what I call longevity in sport. So I want to be 80 years old and uh, hopefully don't care what pace I'm running, but still jogging along and saying that it's a beautiful day in the rain because I'm out running. Um, And so I think the fueling can play a big part in that. And you touched on something before too, that this isn't necessarily only about making sure that that run goes well. You did talk about how this is a key component to recovery as well. So talk a little bit about that because I think some people miss this point um, of fueling before and during a workout actually helps with the recovery of the workout. Totally. And I think that's a really important point, Matt. And that's a big difference. I mean, think back and any of us, I ran in high school and college. I don't know how many of your listeners did, or it doesn't really matter, but I can remember back to when I was 18 and 20 and running in high school and college. And did we follow the nutrition rules? No, we didn't even know what they were. Did we get injured? Yeah, we did a bunch of times. Might we have gotten injured less? Yeah, maybe, but we bounced back quickly because we were 18 or 22, right? Um, 
as we get older, it takes us longer to recover from everything, right? So from a physiological perspective, you know, we're more likely to have uh, different niggles and it takes us longer to recover if we sprain our ankle or Achilles tendon starts to hurt. So all those things take longer. In terms of running, you know, we've got a lot of control and I, I can't do this without like touching where, like go to our quads, think of our powerhouse muscles. We need those muscles strong, we need them repaired, and we need them stock full of glycogen, energy, carbohydrates, if we want to do what we want to do, which is go out and run and whatever pace and plan is for the day, but have fun with it. So uh, I think that's a really good point in terms of thinking bigger picture, especially as we're master's athletes. I won't use the O-L-D-E-R word, Um, but especially as we've been running for a while, to really think about that experienced learning experience or experienced runners that's perfect perfect thank you <laughs> experienced runners um although if someone just started and they were 55 i would say jump on the bandwagon and please fuel right uh, <laughs> exactly. so a little bit of both but so really thinking about fueling as an investment and i think hopefully most adults can understand the the power of an investment i mean i make all these weird analogies my clients will laugh it's like you know when you're in college and you'd buy the cheap shoes and they, you know, wear out after five seconds. And eventually you realize your headphones, you buy the cheap headphones and they die 12 times. And you realize, you know what, if I had bought the good headphones once, I would have actually saved money, right? So you learn the importance of investing in things you're going to use and your body is a thing that you're using all the time. So here's my plea to invest in your body. And that includes the stretching and things that hopefully we do more of, which I know I do more of than I used to. Um, and then really the nutrition piece. So thinking about if I don't take in fuel beforehand and I go run 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, and I keep doing this day after day, I'm more likely if you think of your muscles as full of carbohydrate energy stored as this glycogen, I'm more likely that tank is getting lower and lower over the course of the weeks and the months. And then when I go to run and I go to do something hard or I go to do high-end work, so above 70% of VO2 max, you're burning through a lot of carbs, you're not talking to too many people, you're definitely not singing along out loud with your music, you're burning through carbs like crazy, you really don't have that reserve in there because you have less storage. Um, Same thing with muscle recovery. If we don't fuel before runs, then we don't have the ability to repair those muscle fibers that get sore and ripped and torn a little bit. It always sounds terrible, but that's part of the process, right? We build them down to break them stronger. So it takes a lot longer to build those back. So do I want to say, well, I can't run, uh, I can't feel before I run. So I'm willing to wait three or four days between runs to restock my glycogen and to get those muscles repaired. Or would I rather say, you know what? I think it's worth figuring out what I can eat before runs and then I can train again a lot sooner, right? So you get that muscle repair faster, glycogen restocks faster, and you'll be able to train again sooner. Risk of injury goes down, Um, and not to mention that RPE, so the rate of perceived exertion, how hard we feel like we're working during a run that goes down when you fuel before. So, you know, sometimes you're running along and you're like, I'm cruising and you're like, yes, I am cruising. And other times you're, you know, oh, I'm working so hard, like the end of a marathon. And you're like, I'm actually slowing down and I feel like I'm working harder. So fueling, that's part of why we fuel during those runs. Yeah. And going back to the first point that you brought up, um, Talking about the protein intake and how the body, as we as we age, we're less efficient in um, digesting the protein and putting it to good work and putting it to good use. The hard part for some masters runners, and by that I mean <laughs> the person I see in the mirror every morning, is 
juxtaposing that with the fact that Michael Estrell is 315. So I need to limit some of the foods that would help me get the kind of protein that I should get after runs and throughout the day. So now I'm kind of stuck in this weird position of like, all right, so what, what am I doing here? Right. Am I, can I serve both of these masters at the same time or am I going to have to sacrifice in one direction or the other? No, you can serve both. And I would say it's just a reframing of that statement. So it's just maybe being more creative um, and figuring out what are other sources for your protein needs. And so there are a lot of protein sources that you can eat that hopefully you like and appeal to you. We'll find out how picky you are on them. But, and you know, as long as we get a bunch of them that don't have a ton of cholesterol and that aren't going to raise your cholesterol. So how many people are eating spare ribs? How often when they get back for a run, that would be a bad choice with high cholesterol. Uh, but that's not what you usually want. So, you know, maybe you're cooking up some egg whites and you're eating a banana before your run and that got you plenty of protein. It got you some carbs and we have zero cholesterol. So we're fine. You come back and maybe we're making a smoothie and you put some protein powder in it, or maybe you're making a tofu scramble with some beans and tortillas, or maybe you're doing some low fat yogurt. Maybe you're doing chicken. You've got turkey. We've got tempeh. We have fish. We can smoke salmon. We, I mean, we can get creative. We can get you, I guarantee you, we can get you enough protein without raising your cholesterol. And then lowering it is going to come from other things, right? Increasing your soluble fiber intake. So making sure you're eating the beans and the oats and the apples and the pears and really high soluble fiber foods so that those can help clear some of the cholesterol. If it's genetic that your liver may just be making, um, you may have an overachieving liver. That's, you know, sounds good, but in this case we want to help clear some of that overachieving liver. And so a lot of the soluble fiber foods will do that for you. Got it. All right. So that makes a lot of sense. Now for a lot of runners who are pursuing the marathon. And I bring up the marathon because that's typically a race that tends to skew older for runners, right? People usually build up to it over a period of time. You see a lot of people, you don't see a lot of 22 year olds breaking off their first marathon. Um, even for professional runners, you don't see that. Never mind amateur runners who are the people who are going to be listening to this show. So a lot of people who are investing in their first marathon are going to be right around that age 35, if not older. And for so many endurance athletes who are going into the marathon or, or trying to even go farther, who are you know pursuing ultras, we're seeing people go after ultras at um, an amazing rate, considering what's going on with COVID. Just a lot of those have been more open than than some other races. What we've seen, and I know that you're aware of this, but I'm going to point this out to other people if they're not, is that sometimes people's effectiveness for handling those kinds of distances is not merely a matter of fitness level and the kind of training that they've done, but it's also their ability to digest food on the run. So with that in mind, what are some of the strategies that you use with some of your athletes to get them to the point where they're able to, to do that, where it, taking food in on the run is something that they're used to and that they can do and that they're not always coming from this caloric deficit and barely hanging on uh, as they're approaching the finish line? Thank you for phrasing it that way, because barely hanging on doesn't sound like the best way to a fun, fantastic marathon finish. I mean, so the first thing is, and you set it up nicely, so thank you for that. You know, does anybody expect, and maybe there are a couple people that expect, that they can just get up off their couch and put on a watch and run 26.2 miles? Most people know that you're going to have to train for a while, that that's not a great plan. 
Um, I'm sure there are a couple people that did it on a bet and I hope they're okay. But most of us know, you, you know, you look up a training plan, you spend some time, there are going to be some hard days. You're going to train. The word is train so that you can get to do that. We have to train our gut. So was I always able to eat while I was running? No. The first marathon I did, I was actually in college. Our coach was really mad. I think he's forgiven us. If he listens to this, I'm sorry, Coach Truce, but he did find out afterwards because we were a mess the next weekend at a race. But we did um, sneak off and go to Florida and run a marathon. And um, we practiced trying to eat tiny little bits, but we were terrible at it. And our nutrition plan was nothing. And then over time, after I've done a ton of marathons and I've done the Ironman triathlon three times, you get really good at eating. I mean, I can eat sandwiches on the bike. I can eat granola bars while I'm running. And other people look at me like, how do you do that? And it's called training. So I think the first real thing is just to say, no one is born running or eating while they're running. We don't even do either of those things when we're born, right? You're laying there and drinking. So you have to practice. So it's really getting yourself used to it. So the first thing is, I don't want anybody to sell themselves short and say, oh, I can't do it. Other people can do this. I can't. I'm going to just suffer through and hope I don't die. That's not the way this goes. Um, and then it's, you know, start sooner. So don't wait until it's a super long run. Define that however you want. 18 miles of your marathon training before you start fueling. Fuel before you feel terrible, which I think sounds funny, but people wait. I don't know when to start fueling. I guess when I start feeling terrible out there. I'll start fueling. That's not a good plan. So maybe somewhere around a little over an hour, by an hour and a half for sure. However many miles you're getting in an hour and a half, I don't care. You should be fueling. So some super speedy people will get a bunch of miles and other people will get less miles, but we're out there for an hour and a half, start fueling. And then we start small. So the really the easiest thing to take in would be some sort of sports drink. And here's where the virtual racing world has been um, a little bit helpful in that you can loop maybe back to your house or back to your car or back to somewhere and you can pick up whatever drink you want instead of, oh, the race is serving this drink and I have to get used to that. So in the virtual racing world, you can pick whatever drink you want. There are so many really great drinks out on the market. Uh, back when I started running marathons, there was one, maybe two. Um, so now there have to be flavor profiles and sugar amounts and salt amounts that everyone can tolerate. Um, you know, when you're going to do a race in person again, which we all look forward to, when they serve something on the course, it behooves you to practice drinking that to see if you can tolerate that. Um, and if not, see what the rules will be at that point, what you can carry. But it's really about practicing and it's about fueling early and often. If you wait until you feel terrible, it's too late. You're losing time. You're losing performance. You're losing fun. Um, and also your gut won't be as happy taking things in. So when you're running and you're oxygen deprived and you're going for two hours and then you think, oh, I'm kind of feeling dizzy or crampy and maybe I should take something in, your gut doesn't really want food then. It hasn't had food in two hours. It hasn't had fluids. So you're actually more likely to have GI distress and stomach upset. So hopefully that helps people to realize the sooner they start, and I don't mean five minutes into the run, but give yourself, you know, 30, 45 minutes and then start taking little bits of water or a couple of energy chews. The sooner you start, the better your stomach will probably digest it. Yeah. And you bring up a good point there too, about like, you don't <laughs> eating while you're huffing and puffing or putting in, you know, like a 5k effort is really tough. It's really difficult. I mean, first of all, just try breathing during that. Like it's going to be pretty tough. Um, never mind swallowing and, and ingesting the whole thing. Uh, I know with some of the athletes I work with, I'll, I'll even have like in the mix of a marathon block will be long runs where there won't be any increase in tempo. It would just be like, hey, 
we're just practicing fueling in this one. Like, I want you fueling on all of them, but this one's like, this is just a fueling day. This is not, we're not, we're not up tempo here. Again, there's other reasons to, for it too. Like maybe the previous weekend we went really hard. So we're going to like, you know, cycle through. Um, but it's definitely one of those things where, like you mentioned, doing it for the first time during a hard effort might not be setting yourself for, not, might, might not be setting yourself up for success. And you might get a false negative of like, oh, I guess, you know, brand X doesn't work for me. You're like, no, it works fine. You didn't work for you in this situation. And that's part of it too, is that you have to kind of figure out what works for your belly. Um, Cause not everything will. Probably not. I mean, every once in a while I get some athletes, I've got this ultra distance adventure racer, and I'm not even going to tell you what he can tolerate because I don't think anyone else on the podcast, you or I included Ken, but the things he's like, can I eat this? And the ultra runners out there will understand this because uh, when you're going for that long, you know, the the problem with fueling during running is twofold. One, I have to breathe. That comes first. No matter what, I have to breathe. If I'm working so hard that I can barely breathe, taking in fluids and food is going to be hard. Two, if I'm working that hard, the blood flow to the gut has been divert, diverted astronomically. So sitting here chatting, our guts can digest. This is an exciting conversation, but we're still doing fine. We can digest. So if we took a bite of a sandwich, we'd be fine. And the faster you go, the less blood flow to the gut, the slower your digestion is, the more difficult. So two things, 100% Matt, I love that. Do, I love to send people out if they're nervous, go do a three mile run. Yes, I understand there's no need to fuel during this three mile run. All we're doing is testing one or two consistencies or flavors of goose. So you're gonna go out and a mile and a half in, yes, you do not need this. You're practicing opening the gel, you're practicing squirting it in your mouth and on your hair and on the person behind you or whatever, you're tasting it. And if it goes terribly, you can jog slowly home and you don't care because this was an easy run, right? Or practice it on an easy, longer run. And then as you get more confident with those things, practice them on, on faster and faster runs. The exception really is the, uh, the ultra endurance folks. And it's a whole different race. You know, the blood flow to the gut is higher and The statistics really are, I mean, we knew this anecdotally, but now we have some studies showing uh, that the ultra runners that take in more calories and more calories from fat have higher completion rates and better chance of finishing the race. So any ultra marathons out, our marathoners listening to this are probably like, hell yeah, I knew I've been eating a burger and that everyone told me that was crazy or the chips that I eat on my ultra, it made sense to me and they're a hundred percent right. Um, but for everybody under 50 miles. And so we probably want to steer clear of that. And it's really just based on pace. All right. So let's talk about uh, gender here uh, in terms of fueling and making sure that we're providing the right stuff for different kinds of people. Right. And it's someone uh, that I know, uh, Holly always loves to, uh, always loves to say, you know, women are not just small men. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and she gets she that from Stacey this, Sims. <laughs> there you go. See, it's, it comes, comes from somebody. So, with that in mind, what are some of the differences that you provide to athletes depending on uh, on their gender? Sure. So let's, I guess we can make it as quick as possible. Most studies for a really long time were all done on men. So we've got a lot of really great data on men. The early carbo loading stuff was on men and then just extrapolated, oh, if it works for men, well, you know what? When I went to Berkeley, there were some absolutely brilliant, amazing people in physiology and nutritional biochemistry doing all kinds of research. 
And I kept asking why we're not studying women. And the, the answers I kept getting back were very similar in that, well, because women have a menstrual cycle, we have to be so specific with the exact dates that it's much harder, right? If we brought a woman in on day 12, we have to wait a month and bring her in on day 12. Matt, you can come in on Tuesday and Friday or Tuesday and next Tuesday. So it just took a lot longer. So most of all the early stuff and even recent stuff, uh, the data is on men or the data are on men. And so it's a lot easier. Newer research on women is showing there are differences. So yeah, especially for some of our marathon runners, we'll look at difference in carbohydrate utilization and in sweat rates um, over the course of the menstrual cycle. So if someone knows when their really long, hard run is or their marathon is, we're going to tweak things a little bit based on that. Um, and then in general, I think some specific things, fasted workouts go way worse for women. So if you weren't convinced in our earlier conversation um, and especially as we get older, so call it perimenopause, 45, 50 and above for women, you asked the question. So now I'm going to answer it. Uh, if anyone wants to tune out for this for 30 seconds and jump back in, go, you know, jump up and down, but it's important. So I'm glad you asked, uh, really important not to do those fasted workouts. We see hormone fluctuations, estrogen goes high, cortisol goes high and fasted workouts raises cortisol. And that doesn't help. It doesn't help with body comp that, uh, changes that we don't want to happen or people are usually complaining about in terms of that uh, this age demographic. And so that's one really important thing. And then in terms of differences, again, they'd be in, in carbohydrate utilization and fluids, let's say, over the cycle. All right. Lauren, thank you for getting into that. I appreciate it. It's something that you know, the more that I learned, I hear, you know, you referenced those studies and you hear it and you're like, oh like what a, you know, that's it's, it's so unfortunate that um, they basically just took half the population <laughs> and studied them. I mean, it's, obviously, when you're doing studies, you're trying to isolate certain factors, right? So you're like, okay, we're going to isolate these factors and take out as much extraneous data as we can so that we can say, hey, this is the reason, this is why, and this is the correlation, right? So I can understand the thinking of like, hey, if it's easier, why don't we just do it this way, except... <laughs> then the the results aren't quite as valid for the people that you're trying to help. And that's certainly not anyone's goal either. So I appreciate you getting into it. And I mean, the long and the short of it is good science is difficult, right? You do have to control tons of variables and good science in humans is really difficult because we do so many things all day, stress and sleep and whether you ate a little bit more or less. So in those free living studies, it's really hard. So to add more variables, it makes it exponentially harder. But at least, you know, we are seeing more and more researchers that are looking at that and it is important. And the other thing is, I mean, I don't know, as a high school or collegiate runner, you know, was that ever a conversation? And we were fortunate. We had amazing male coaches. They were all male coaches. Had we had a female coach at any point in there, would they have asked us about our menstrual cycle? I don't know. But no one ever did. And it was not anything we'd ever mentioned. So I think it is good for people to know coaches, um, partners and also women who may be noticing these things like, huh, why do I run better marathons at this time? Or why does my training feel really awesome for a couple of weeks? And then it just feels terrible. Start tracking those kinds of things and see. Um, and men can track it too, but you know, it's a little less cyclical. Lauren, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been enlightening. You do great work. The book is fantastic. If people are interested in the book and in you, where can they go? Thanks, Matt. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on. Um, and so my name is Lauren Antonucci. My website is nutritionenergy.com. 
I'm on Instagram at the same nutrition energy. Uh, so at nutrition energy and the name of the book is high performance nutrition for masters athletes. And people can find it on Amazon or with the publisher, which is human kinetics. Thank you so much, Lauren. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Matt. This is fun. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show. Always a blast to talk to someone who is doing something that they love so very much. Uh, also, truth be told, Lauren, such a kind individual, shot me a note after the podcast saying, hey, if you ever need any help, just let me know. I, I'd be happy to help you in anything that you're up to. She is such a kind uh, and giving person. And if you are looking for help with dialing in your nutrition needs, reach out to her. She really is absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. Um, if you haven't done so already, go check out the Road to the Trials podcast. Last week, we put out episodes with both Kira D'Amato and Dana Giordano. I'm recording this on Sunday morning, Mother's Day. If you're, if you're a mother, um, you know, happy Mother's Day to you. Later on today, we got Mount Sack Relays, which is going to be super duper fun. Uh, so you'll be hearing this after that happens, but I'm really excited for that. Also, just a lot of May track meets that are coming up, which is really exciting for the Road to the Trials podcast because so many of our athletes will be competing and we'll be doing recaps with all of them because we're only a month and a half. That's right, a month and a half away from the Olympic trial. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.